Good morning. Good to see everybody here today. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 1 this morning. Always a privilege and a joy to come and worship with you, and especially at the Christmas season where we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and what He is to us. I hope that you're having a season thus far filled with His, uh, His presence and awe and worship of Him. He's good to us. He's faithful to us. And we will see that this morning as we look at Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. Uh, we've been looking uh, the last week, we were here at Genesis chapter 3 in particular, but really we zoomed in on several passages in chapter 1, chapter 2, and then in chapter 3 where we saw the reason we need Christmas, and that is that God created a world and that world was good and beautiful, and in that world there was peace, there was shalom, and our sin disrupted that and upset everything about creation, most importantly separating us from the love of God and separating us from God's care and concern. And so God sends forth His Son, Jesus Christ, for us. as prophesied in Genesis chapter 3 that we looked at last week. This week we look in Luke chapter 1 where Mary has been informed by God Himself, by an angel, that she will carry the Christ child, that the Son of God is now forming in her womb and will come forth, born from her, to be the Savior of all people. You can imagine what that would be like for her. And she sings a song of praise here in Luke chapter 1. We start in verse number 46 this morning. Here's the Word of God, Mary's song of praise to God. Verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth for all generations will they'll call me blessed. For he is mighty, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has fulfilled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this day thanking you that you are good and that you are kind and that you are faithful. And that, Lord, we see that everywhere in Scripture. We see that every day in our lives. And yet this season, as we celebrate the birth of your Son, the coming of our King, and all of the redemption that comes with Him, all of the life that flows forth from Him, God, as we celebrate that this season, we are especially reminded of your faithfulness, of your mercy, of your justice, and all of the things, God, that you told and promised of old, that God come to fruition and fulfillment in your Son. Help us this day as your people living in 2019, waiting again for you to come. God, help us to look back to your Son today and in Him find our hope, our strength, our peace, and everything, Father, that we long for and that we need. We love you. We give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, can you imagine what this would be like? Can you imagine what this would be like for this young girl named Mary to be informed by an angel that in her womb the Christ child is forming, that from her will come forth a child, and that this child is going to be the Savior of all people. 
that God himself is going to work for redemption throughout the entire world through the child being formed in her womb. This seed in her womb is indeed the seed that God foretold back in Genesis chapter 3. All the way back in the very beginning, God already had this moment and this child in mind. Mary's informed that she carries this child, and indeed she's overwhelmed. Now, scholars will point to her age, they'll debate that. Some people, when you think about a young maiden, you think about someone in their young 20s, but all estimates indicate that probably she's in her teenage years when she finds out this news, that she is going to carry the Christ child. She's overwhelmed, mostly with gratitude and with praise. And when she and Elizabeth connect in, in Luke chapter 1 here and, and praise God together, Mary explodes forth in praise in this song here, and she magnifies God for what, she, what He has done in her life and in the Christ child through Him to all of us. And the question I'll ask you this morning is, well, why? Why exactly is she praising God the way that she does in this passage? I'll, give us, I'll point to three different reasons of why it is that she's praising God in the passage. First of all, I want you to see with me verse number 46 through verse number 50. She praises God because Christ is the display of God's mercy. Can you imagine what it would be like for the people of God to have been waiting all this time, century after century, Thousands of years have gone by and they wait for the coming of the king. And in one generation after another, there is hope that he'll come in their lifetime and he never does. And they want to see the mercies of God come down to us. But now Mary has the very vessel that that mercy will come through in her womb. And she praises God for this. Verse 46, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And then verse 48 and verse number 50 in particular, we see two particular reasons or ways that we see the mercy of God. First of all, in verse 48, she takes note of the fact that God has honored such a humble maiden as herself, that God has honored someone so lowly and so unexpected as herself to carry the Christ child. For he has regarded, it says, the lowly state of his maidservant. In other words, God has looked down upon someone who is humbled. Behold, so much so that from henceforth all generations will call me blessed. And indeed, she was right, for to this day we esteem her as someone that God chose to carry the Christ child. She marvels in verse 49 at his mighty arm and the good things that God has done for her. Now what I want to pause for just a moment before we look down at verse 49 and look at one other thing that God is doing here. What we want to do here is we, we want to take note of the fact that God uses the unlikely person. Mary rejoices and is humbled by and is grateful for the fact that God has chosen her, an unlikely candidate, to carry the Christ child. But yet when you look throughout the whole of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, and on into today, in our own lives, I think we have to draw the conclusion that she is precisely the kind of person that God seeks to use. Rarely, if ever, does God call upon the mighty the strong, the wealthy, the privileged, the noble. In fact, one of my, one of my favorite passages of Scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul reminds us that God has not chosen many. It doesn't say He hasn't chosen any. It says He hasn't chosen many from the noble, from the wise, from the strong. But rather, God has chosen the foolish things of this world, the lowly things of this world, 
the unimaginable things of this world to confound the wise. And Mary is a perfect example of this, and she rejoices in this in verse number 48 and verse number 49. But verse number, verse number 49 and 50, we see something else. That, that God is specifically showing mercy to the, to the humble people. He uses the humble, and He shows mercy to the humble, verse number 50. His mercy is on those who fear Him. And then it says this, from generation to generation. What are we to make of that statement? From generation to generation, meaning this is the way it was, this is the way it is, and this is the way it will be. From generation to generation is a way of saying this is how God operates in all times, at all places, across history. It's a universal principle. God loves the humble and He hates the proud. Now, I would just pause here for a moment and remind us all, as I remind us from time to time when I'm preaching, we either believe that or we don't. I know what I just said is good Sunday school material. I know that that's the kind of thing that we will say to each other and affirm when we're all together. Yeah, God loves the humble, but He hates the proud. But yet then we go about our lives in such a way that we contradict that belief. We go about our lives in such arrogant, prideful ways, shunning and eschewing humility in the lowly, and yet that is precisely the kind of thing that God loves and that He esteems. And it is evidenced by the fact that God would choose someone like Mary. Might I also add that it is evidenced by the fact that God would use someone like you and like me. You know, I, I don't carry the Christ child in my body. You don't either. None of us do. We don't have that same kind of privilege. But there is a sense in which we, in a, maybe a different sense carry the same Christ with us. The Apostle Paul in the book of Corinthians says, the first Corinthians, he says that we hold this treasure in earthen vessels, meaning that we carry something precious and sacred, the gospel itself, Christ itself. And what are we that hold it? We are earthen vessels. We are jars of clay, base, ordinary, lowly, humble, meager. Who am I, Lord? That you would choose me. Who am I, Lord, that you would, he would choose us to carry the Christ child? But that is indeed what we see God doing through Mary. God uses Mary and brings Christ through her. And this is a display of the mercy of God to us that he has chosen the humble things of this world. The book of James tells us the same thing. James chapter 4, for example, James says it this way. Draw near to God. Here's a promise for you, by the way. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. You want to know the recipe of communion with God? It's not rocket science. Draw near. What does that mean? How do we do it? Now, that might be a little bit different question. Pray fast. Seek Him. Repent of your sins. Cry out to Him for His closeness with you. You draw near to God, and the Bible promises us that He will in turn draw near to us. And then he tells us this, we are to cleanse our hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. You cannot draw near to God unless you turn from your sins. You cannot draw near to God if sin is running and ruling in your heart and in your minds. We have to turn from those things and not be double-minded, which is to say, you cannot try to hang on to your sin and love it and expect to be near to God. You draw near to God, He draws near to you. You cleanse yourself from your sins. You purify yourself before God. And then He says this, lament, mourn, and weep. We don't like that language, I'm afraid. 
We don't like that language because it's not positive. It's not encouraging. We don't want to weep. We don't want to lament. But I tell you, brothers and sisters, there are things in all of our lives that we must weep over. There are things present in our day-to-day affairs. There are things present in our lives that we must lament. The brokenness, the selfishness, the pride, the arrogance, the backbiting, the manipulating, the hatred, the dissension, all of those things that show up in our lives, these are the things that must be lamented in us. And this is part of drawing near to God. We do those things and God draws near. We let, we lament, we mourn, we weep. We let our laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's a rather depressing picture. What's the point that James is trying to make here? It's very simple. And please hear me on this. The point is not that we're to live that way constantly. The point is not to lament and weep and stay there and wallow in it. It's to give repentance its rightful place in the life of the believer. Repentance is not just something you do once or twice throughout the duration of your faith. It's not something that you do the day, the night, the moment that you come to faith in Christ, and then maybe one other time when you have a really bad sin experience. No, turning from sin is a daily thing. And we, we, let, it, we let repentance have its rightful place in our lives. And then we get up and live with Christ. Listen, repentance and mourning over our sin is a sign of humility before God. James then says this, humble yourself in the sight of God and He will lift you up. That's the point of the text there. That repentance or humility and lowliness is key to us walking with God. It's to posture ourselves low before God and He will lift us up. That's why God uses a little girl like Mary, so unexpected, so humble, so acutely aware of her unworthiness. And God seeing that says, that's precisely the kind of person I'm looking for. That is the way it has always been. Old Testament, New Testament. Hubris and arrogance have no place in God's economy. I know it is the currency of our world. Our world cherishes it. Our world esteems it. Our world showcases it. Our world celebrates it in everything it does. But it's the opposite in God's world. It's the opposite in God's kingdom. He's looking for the humble. He's looking for the lowly. And He picks Mary for precisely this person. And as such, Christ coming forth from her is a display of God's mercy to the humble. Second thing I want you to see... Christ is not only a display of God's mercy, Christ is also a display of God's justice. Verse 51 through 53, Mary here in her praise to God remembers what God is ultimately going to do through the Christ child. And here we see really a furthering of the point that I'm making. God has this way of flipping the scales on us, doesn't He? He has this way of taking those that are proud and arrogant and bringing them low. And He has a way of taking those who are low and lifting them high. Mary praises God because at last, through Christ, though they have waited long, though they have waited for centuries for Christ to come, now in the coming of Christ, God is inaugurating His work through the incarnation here to make it so. Verse 51, He has shown strength with His arm. He has 
scattered the proud. Notice the consequence of the pride. Pride, yes, it will have its moment. It will get its 15 minutes of fame. But it will be 15 minutes only. Uh, He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Which is to suggest that, you know, they they imagine all these great, wonderful things for themselves. God will grant it to them. And yet, in so doing, it will scatter them. It will destroy them. It will not bless them. Verse 52. He's put down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted the lowly. Again, God balances the scales. Understand this. This is the way the world is built. This is the way the universe is wired. Why? Because God Himself made it. And if God made the world this way, then we could expect within the furniture of reality, within the fixtures of reality, within the stuff that God has made, this is how the world operates. Those who will exalt themselves will ultimately come crashing down. Pride always goes before a fall. Verse 54, or verse 53, He's he's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He sent away empty. Wow, notice how it flips. The poor now feed. The rich go away with nothing. Verse 53. Uh, And the rich he sent away empty. He has helped Israel, his servant. He has helped his servant Israel is what he says there. So what's the point of what he's saying? He's saying once again, God has this way of flipping things. Those who would exalt themselves and lift themselves high, those are the ones that God will make low. And the ones that are low... Those are the ones that he will lift high. This is very hard for us to believe. When I say believe, I don't mean mentally or intellectually believe. I think all of us, again, in the Sunday school fashion would affirm that. When I say it's hard to believe it, what I mean by that is simply this. It's hard for us to trust it. It's hard for us to trust it in such a way that we will let things work out believing that that's actually going to be be what comes to pass. So we find ourselves in tough situations where it looks like the unrighteous or the, those who are ungodly will, will thrive and prosper, prosper, and those who are humble before God are just going to get trampled on. That's the way it looks so often. And when it happens that way, we're tempted to take matters into our own hands, try to jockey and maneuver for position. We try to situate ourselves We try to elevate ourselves by either tearing somebody else down or by bragging about ourselves. We begin to do everything we can to play the world's game. And when we do that, we are not trusting that God Himself is God. We are not trusting that God is providential in His working and that God really does hate the proud and love the humble. And that God will balance the scales. Jesus said this, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. You know, there's all these blessed are those who statements. Well, there's one that's particularly interesting. I'm afraid it's one that we don't really wrap our heads around. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Okay, we don't hear a lot about meekness, do we? Blessed are the meek. It's odd that he talks about meekness as a spiritual virtue. Blessed are the meek, that's odd, number one, that he would talk about that as a virtue. And then the reward for meekness is equally odd to us. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. What? What does that mean? Well, meekness is often illustrated with the the picture of a horse. Meekness is not weakness. It might look like weakness. 
It might seem or appear to people that it's weakness because someone who is meek might not bow up. Someone who is meek might not exert themselves in a powerful way. Rather, someone who is meek may indeed sit back and let things play out. It may appear that the person who's meek is letting others trample over them, but that's not what that is. Meekness is not weakness. And I get that the distinction here might be subtle in its appearance. Meekness The picture of a horse is simply this. Think about a horse. A horse is powerful. A horse is mighty. A horse has strength. A horse has speed. The horse has the ability to run and exert itself with full strength. And yet the horse, when it is under the bridle of a master, does not do that. Though it has the power to exert itself, it does not do that. But rather it surrenders its own function to the purposes of the master and to the control of the master. So while the horse may indeed have the ability to explode forth with great power, it will only do so if the master riding it commands it to. The horse will bring itself into submission under someone else and only do as it's instructed to do. And in so doing, what the horse is doing is it's trusting the master to make the right call and to work things out. Blessed are the meek. You know what? You have the ability. Here's the truth. You have the ability to exert yourself, to bow up, and to do much of those types of things. You have the ability to play the world's game. But if you do, you're not meek. Blessed. In other words, it is well with you if you're meek. How is it well with you? What do you inherit? What do you get in return for this meekness, for letting the Lord control the situation and not you? What do you get in return for that? That's hard, isn't it? It's hard to trust that, isn't it? Hard to trust that God's actually going to work it out for you, isn't it? Yep. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Watch this. They shall inherit the earth. In other words, why would you jockey? Why would you bolster? Why would you do these things? It's because you're trying to get yours. You feel like you're being done wrong. You're not being done right. You have to get yours, and so you play the world's game. Blessed are the meek. Let the Lord control it. Let the Lord sift it out. And what Jesus promises is if you let him do that, he can orchestrate the affairs in such a way better than you can, such that what it is that you really seek, what it is that you really need, God himself will bring it into your life. And I promise you this, if you get where you're trying to get one day, because you yourself have jockeyed, you yourself have manipulated, you yourself have torn others down, you yourself have played the world's game, then ultimately... There is no blessing in that. But if you get to where you're trying to get one day because God himself has orchestrated it, I'm telling you that it will overflow with blessings. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. God will grant to you. Why? Because you're humble before him. And God honors humility. This is what Mary is praising God for. I mean, think about her. Think about the generations of people that that have been humble before Him that God has blessed and looked after. And think about the people that have bowed up and they always come crashing down. Mary realizes that in her womb the Christ child is coming and that this is indeed the fulfillment of God's justice. This Messiah who will come will bring the proud low and will elevate the lowly. This is how our God works. Third thing I want you to see here today. Christ is a display of God's mercy. Christ is also a display of God's justice. But Christ, verse 54 and 55, is a display of God's faithfulness. I love this. Verse 54 and 55. He has helped 
his servant Israel. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Israel has had its high moments. It's had its low moments. Israel has been obedient. Israel has been disobedient. Up and down and bouncing off the concrete again and again. Israel goes up and down. And it seems as though to Israel perhaps that God has forgotten. But Mary now with the Christ child in her womb knows that God has remembered His promises and has now helped Israel. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. That key word there in that verse I believe is the word remembrance. We the people of God must know that our God remembers His promises. He remembers in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Abraham, leave your father's house, which is to say, abandon everything that you've ever known, everything you've ever trusted, everything you shall inherit. Walk away from it all. Oh, and by the way, go to a land that I will show you. I'm not going to show it to you yet. Can you imagine what that would be like for Abraham? Abandon everything you have, everything you know, everything you trust for a hypothetical. For a something, sometime, somewhere that I'll show you. I'll get around to it, Abraham. No wonder we refer to him as the patron of, of faith. He trusts. And then again later, he has to trust when God calls him to sacrifice his son. That he waited for for so very long who he had to trust God to actually give. He trusted God. And God gave him this promise. Abraham, leave your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will bless you. And in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Your descendants will outnumber the stars of the heavens. Your descendants shall outnumber the sand of the seas. Abraham is old. His wife is barren, and yet he believes. There was a promise that through Abraham's seed, blessing to all the nations would come. Tie that in with Genesis 3. Genesis 3, through the seed of a woman, the serpent will be crushed. Now, Genesis chapter 12, through the seed of Abraham, so specifically through his bloodline is what you're supposed to see there, through his bloodline, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed, which is to say the gospel is not just for the Jews. It is for Jew, it is for Gentile, it is for black, it is for white, it is for Asian, it is for old, it is for young, it is for all peoples. Through the seed of a woman and through specifically Abraham's bloodline, a Messiah will come. We're told later there's more history that unfolds. David is of that same bloodline. And David, it has to come through his bloodline. Through the bloodline for the seed of a woman, which is in the bloodline of Abraham and of David, a Messiah must come. When you read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, you're going to pick up there this long, if I can just say it, in the typical devotional reading of our lives today, we tend to think of Matthew chapter 1 as a boring chapter. Because it's just a list of genealogies. So-and-so begot, so-and-so, and so-and-so begot, so-and-so. And you go, okay, what's the point of all this? Points to this. It's to Matthew is showing his Jewish audience that Jesus Christ is indeed of the bloodline of Abraham and of the bloodline of David, and therefore he qualifies to be the Messiah. Luke chapter 1, Mary in this song knows 
that this one that is in her womb is of the seed of Abraham and that bloodline. And God has done this in remembrance of his promises of old. Now, why is that important? I've mentioned this to you before. It's important because the people of God have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. I mean, there are whole generations of people that are born, that live, and that die and never see anything in God's unfolding of the eschatological kingdom. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. It would be very tempting for the Jewish people to wonder if God had forgotten. It would be very tempting for us today, in the midst of our sorrows and our difficulties and our struggles, to wonder if our God has forgotten. And yet Mary, with the Christ child in her womb, knows that the one who is in her womb is the fulfillment of all of those prophecies of old and proof of the fact that our God has not forgotten His promises. This is not the first time in history, as I may have said to you before, where there seems to have been some radio silence from heaven. No new prophets, no new miracles, no new things like that. And we sit in this world and we wonder how long, O Lord... Well, the Jews rightly wondered that. I've mentioned this to you before. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 24. I think this is the most beautiful part of the book of Exodus. Not the ten plagues, not the miracles, not the parting of the Red Sea or any of those things. No, it's right in the beginning of the book, chapter 2. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. And listen to this. And so God heard their groaning and God remembered remembered his covenant to Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob. Hundreds of years have gone by, and yet God heard his people crying out. He heard them, and God himself remembered. And what did he do? He delivered his people. Galatians chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. In the fullness of time when it had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Folks, what do I say here? This is a reminder that Christ is in her womb, is a reminder of the fact that God is faithful and He does not forget His promises. And if that was true for Mary, I'm telling you it's true for you and it's true for me right now. What do we need to do then? In the sea of discouragement, in the sea of brokenness, I'd say a couple things. Number one, we need to develop a good theology, but most important, a good practice of waiting. We wait on the Lord. doesn't mean we sit around and twiddle our thumbs and just go about business as usual. We wait postured knowing that He will return, knowing that His work is not yet done, and that He will balance the scales. And we long for Him to come. Just like the people in Exodus, we cry out to our God. You know what I don't hear much in our world today? And by our world, I mean Baptist world. I mean evangelical world. I don't hear much about crying out for God for Him to return. Maybe it's because eschatology, which is end times theology, is not as popular as it was in the 90s. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, there were charts, there were Bibles, there were book series that were written on a popular fictional level to illustrate all this, and everybody and anybody was all up into the end time stuff. I'm not saying we got to go back to that, 
But maybe because it's not as popular now as it was back then, we don't cry out to God for Him to return. But we must. Because we wait in this world for Christ to return. And we do so remembering the fact that He is faithful as we see Christ in the womb of Mary. Let me close this day by asking you a couple questions just very quickly. Number one, how has God given you mercy? God gave incredible mercy to Mary by using her and by acknowledging and honoring her humble estate. How has God shown you mercy? Because if you're like me, I'm a knucklehead. I've done a lot of stuff, and God has had to show a lot of mercy to me. It would do us well as the people of God to take stock of and inventory of the massive and extensive ways that God is merciful with us. And take note of the fact that God has trusted you to carry His gospel. God has trusted you and us collectively to be a part of His kingdom work and invest in something that lasts for all of eternity. But I press that question on you for your consideration throughout the day, throughout the week. How has God been merciful to you? I challenge you to meditate on that, to ask yourself that question, to reflect on that question. And then marvel and praise to God for the way that He's been merciful to you. Second question I want to ask you. Do you trust the fact that God is just? Do you trust the fact that God will balance the scales one day? I know inequity seems to be rampant. I know that the humble seem to be overlooked and sometimes trampled upon. And I know in that context it's very difficult to actually trust God. Instead of taking up arms ourselves, and fighting those battles ourselves. So the question I ask and press on you is, do you, do you trust Him? And what are you going to face this week where you need to pull yourself back and just trust Him? Because in a room this size, with as many people in here, I dare say that the vast majority of us will indeed face something this week where we just got to not take up matters into our own hands and put it into the hands of God and recognize that the battle belongs to the Lord and trust Him. Do you trust Him? Are you practicing that trust? Where this past week, this past month, this past season of your life, have you faced situations where you didn't trust God and you took up matters for yourself? How'd that work out for you? Do you trust Him? When that next situation and circumstance comes your way, will you trust Him? It'll be hard. It'll be scary. It's so counterintuitive. And yet this is the way God's economy works. Do you trust Him? Last of all, do you trust that God is faithful? The trials we face, the difficulties that we find ourselves firmly situated in, seem to endure. They feel so permanent. They feel as though they'll never stop. They'll never cease. Do you trust that He is faithful? That He's still on His throne? And that He's still got this? And that at the end of the day, He really does win. And we really are His heirs with Him. Do you trust that He is faithful and that He has not forgotten us, His promises, and what He's up to in history. i got to tell you, I look at the the world scene, I, I look at the national scene, and it is such a hot, volatile mess. It's hard to believe that sometimes, isn't it? 
It's hard to believe that this could actually work out the way the Bible promises it will. And yet, that is the faith of a believer. That is what we're called to do. Has God shown you mercy? Yes, He has. How so? Do you trust that He is just? And do you trust that He is faithful? You see, if you're well aware of His mercies in your life, if you trust the fact that He's just, if you trust the fact that He's faithful, you can endure a lot. And with Mary, more importantly, you can marvel at the Christ child with gratitude in your heart. God has not forgotten us. He is still on His throne. Christ is still Lord. And we, the people of God, know this, believe this, commit ourselves to this, and magnify Christ this Advent season. Father God, we love you and we thank you so much for your enduring mercies with us. So perfect, so pure, so mild, so great. To think that the God who spoke and brought all of it into existence knows our names, the hairs on our head, the thoughts in our minds, the words on our tongues. To think that you bother to be intimately acquainted with all of our ways. And that still yet beyond that you love us that you sent Christ forward to be our Redeemer is astounding. So, Father, this day I pray that you'd help us, your people, to love you, to worship you, to behold you, to cherish you this day. We give ourselves to you. We ask you to bless. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.